Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts. Hello. On this CityWire Selector podcast, we're hitting the road. Earlier this month, I, that's Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWire Selector, chaired a panel session in Luxembourg where we looked at the changing shape of the fund selection industry. Join me on stage were Marco Veronda of AZ Fund Management and Fuchs Group's Ivan Nicholas. In this discussion, both Marco and Ivan gave their first-hand experience of what fund selectors are dealing with and what they'll have to contend with in the future as well. There's generally something for everyone in here, ESG evolution, tech takeovers, regulation meltdowns, and the rise of preferred partnerships. Both selectors spoke candidly and openly about what their job and their domestic market will look like in the years to come. So sit back and enjoy. One of the areas that we're hearing more and more about in terms of fund selection is the role of ESG, and that's why we put it in the questions at the start. The, the outcome was that people are moving towards it, but not doing a massive amount. From the conversations we had beforehand, you were both in quite different places. So, Marco, if I could come to you first. Where is ESG in your selection models at the moment? Has it taken much deeper roots, and what will it take to become more of a mainstream idea for fund selectors? Well, it's quite easy because I would say ESG is a, is a reality nowadays within our company. And uh, it's funny because it's happening exactly what uh, you can uh, read from a lot of surveys that you can find, for example, on internet. I would say ESG is a request that is really coming from our client base, mainly from women, mainly from the youngest portion of our uh, client uh, network. And uh, it has also been a fairly easy proposition because the first step through which we have done ESG is done through exclusion. So using tools like Sustainalytics, MCI, I would say it's not so difficult to build, uh, in our case, a global equity proposition done that is fulfilling ESG criteria. Of course, the second uh, step, the mandatory one that uh, nearly every one of us is willing to adopt for some of us, probably uh, us inc me included, it will be more difficult, is company engagement. A few of the companies that are here represented today are already doing it, a few Nordic players are doing it, and this is the second uh, mandatory step. Generally speaking, I quite like ESG as a proposition because uh, we are not talking about any alpha uh, product. We are just talking about the adherence of our investments to ethical criteria. So um, I would say for me it's a sort of long-term concept that of course is going to embrace more or less the whole asset management industry in the next few years. So it's a long-term idea, but I know from speaking to Ivan that one of your concerns was about short-term fads and, and the idea that there, there might be some hype, there might be some belief that people aren't looking long-term, but they're doing this somewhat cynically, if, that's, if I've understood that correctly. Yes. Um, with regard to my client base, in fact, they are naturally interested yet into ESG. I'm trying to talk them about ESG, but it doesn't seem to interest them a lot. Maybe because they are older than your clients, Marco. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be a, a big concern to them. And I think that what would make the, the ESG more mainstream would be to have more standardized uh, procedures, like the ISO standard that you have for many other businesses, or to have controls made by auditors, 
based on generally accepted principles because today different houses are applying their own standards that are not clearly defined and you are not always knowing exactly what you're buying. So that's a, a big point. And the other point is that I think ESG for the moment is more a European concern. And in the US, I'm not sure that it is a big concern. And as long as you don't see that the ESG process coming from investors has a real impact on corporate governance, maybe it won't become mainstream. It should be more worldwide. So the definition is an important part in yes. ensuring that people are doing the same thing. And, and I imagine that's a very hard area to, to oversee. I mean, Marco, when we spoke, you talked about applying it to fund of funds, if I've understood correctly. And the level of due diligence there must be in, in, in exceptional. It must be very deep. You have to go. If I've I, don't think, I don't think it's extremely different from what we already do in our uh, on due diligence that we already do on other type of funds. Sometimes the universe should be a bit uh, 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 tricky to define because as even correctly said, is mainly a European topic. I think that uh, probably 60-70% of uh, worldwide ESG funds are listed in pan-European countries. That means that most of them, they have a, a huge focus on uh, the pan-European region. Not only are listed in the pan-European countries, but they're also focused on pan-European region. Uh, they are also quite uh, usually uh, listed in France, I would say. It's not so easy to uh, build a global equity exposure through regional building blocks because you tend to find too many funds in the pan-European region. But apart from that, I think that uh, the due diligence is not so complex. I would say if we consider the governance factor, we have always been heavily consider, considering governance as a distinguished long-term alpha generation factor in every uh, uh, due diligence that we have done in the past. I recall that when I joined the business 12 years ago, especially on emerging market countries, Usually we were skewed towards companies or boutiques that were really selecting companies that were providing good corporate governance. So governance in itself is a surely a long-term alpha proposition. Environmental and social is more, as I said, the adherence to ethical criteria. So but governance in itself, right. company engagement, yes, is the second step of governance. But good governance in itself is already uh, that's a, a big hurdle to climb. I think. Yeah. I mean, Ivan, do you agree? Do you think that once if you get governance right, the rest will fall into place? Yes. <clears throat> yes, I, I'm, I quite agree with that. But the the other way around is not necessarily true. It's not because you select only good companies with good governments that it will have an impact on other ones to change their governments, as long as it is not widely accepted, worldwide. Yeah. Without moving very quickly on from one topic to another, one area that um, is advancing alongside ESG, and I think this comes into sort of the quant screening and the analysis, is technology and the role that not just technology funds or thematic funds, the actual day-to-day -day technology that you deal with in your jobs, because I understand there's been an increase in robo-advisement, there's been an increase in other areas that change the back office, can improve the due diligence. How much of an impact is technology having on the role of a fund selector? Marco, I'm going to come to you first. But luckily, technology has improved a lot during the last, uh, 
I speak from my experience during the last uh, 12 to 13 years. Because nowadays you can find a lot of useful tools uh, to screen the universe, uh, build reliable peer groups, evaluate consistency, momentum, trend. Uh, but still, I think that the human interaction is quite mandatory. Mandatory because it helps you to check the consistency of an investment process, the consistency of an approach, to evaluate uh, the reason why a manager has a overperformed, underperformed, uh, if he was able to learn from past mistakes or the ability not sometimes to fall into value traps or uh, uh, get too much in love with, with ideas that are going too well or too bad. Uh, so I would say there's a, a really good interaction between, uh, between technology but still the human uh, relation, I think it's quite mandatory. Nevertheless, Probably in the next few years, we cannot foresee it, but surely uh, we, we see it already a little bit now, but there will be a few platforms that are mainly run through technological tools that will be able to provide a fairly effective portfolio solution with passive or low tracking error or low cost product. But is that going to be more of a complementary move? Do you think it's going to be taking good elements of the machine world and the human. It sounds like it's going to be qualitative and quantitative. But this is going to cannibalize a bit, I would say, the, 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 the most retail components of our uh, of clients around the world. I would say whenever you are dealing with uh, affluent client or a network individual, the human interaction is mandatory. Ivan, is that, do you find that the same? Is, is it changing your job? Are you finding that you're using more technological it's, implements? Yes, it's helping us to meet new regulations, to be compliant with the MIFID and other regulations that are imposed to, to us. It provides new tools that allow us to work more efficiently, faster, more uh, accurately. So that, that's for, for sure. But as Margo said, I think it won't change dramatic, dramatically the, the way we work as fundamentals of financial analysis will remain. It's earnings, cash flows, that, that drives the valuation of companies. And whatever the machine that is behind, you must have first a human brain that says to the, to the machine how to work. And that has to control how the machine works. And the real artificial intelligence that would be self-driving cars and so on is not for tomorrow. But OK, yes, maybe in 10 or 20 years it will happen. But we will also have to see how it behaves during the next big crisis, like the one in 2000, 2008, because we know how we behave. We don't know how artificial intelligence will behave in that case. So it hasn't been stress tested yet. It needs a real yeah. an event to see but how it For forms. the moment, it's just at the very beginning, at the verge of a, maybe a revolution, but we don't know yet. I think from our side of things, from speaking to people in the industry, there is this sort of uh, Terminator 2 fear that the machines are going to rise up and take everybody's jobs. That seems to be this fear that they'll become self-aware, they'll take over. Is that anything your clients are talking about? I mean, because we talk to people about AI funds, robotics funds, and there seems to be this sort of science fiction view of the world. Are you finding that it's hard to separate what's really happening from what people are reading in headlines? But if we are all going to stay at home and doing a reading books or doing sport is going to be good, but I don't think this is going to happen. Um, but nevertheless, I personally 
I have never been involved uh, in hedge fund selection, so I was never uh, involved with uh, funds that were applying a, a sort of uh, self-learning uh, CTAs strategies or high-frequency trading strategies. As of today, there are a few funds that are focused on artificial intelligence meant as an algorithm that is self-learning and implementing a true at the life of the fund. Uh, so far, performance, performance have been mixed. Uh, so far, a few of them, uh, they haven't behaved so well, uh, for example, in October. So uh, the, the problem is that uh, I think that nevertheless, they are driven too much by momentum factors in a certain sense, or by still uh, style factors in general. So they are prone to correction, or nevertheless, they are quite difficult to use because it's too difficult for us. The, 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 the biggest challenge in our job is to foresee uh, future performance according to the market conditions that we think is going to be in the future. Whenever we selected these uh, strategies, first of all, we are not clever enough. So we say yes, yes, but probably we understand 10% of, uh, of what uh, is said to us because it's talking about uh, computer programming algorithms, so it's completely a black box. And second, even learning a little bit uh, the strategy that is behind that is too difficult to foresee the future return. So potentially it should have a greater role, potentially they should improve, but my feeling is that probably they're gonna all, they're gonna or behave all in the same way. So probably they're also gonna give a fuel to a potential market correction or a market uh, boom. Or if they uh, behave in a completely different way, I don't know what's the best way to select them. Rather pick them all yeah. and hope that hope diversification is going to play a role. So for me, I, I still want to wait uh, at least a year, two years before digging into that space. So the same for you, um, yeah. Ivan, because when we spoke, you talked about, especially if you're trying to invest in AI or robotics, they need to be pure play. You need to make sure you're not buying a robotics fund that's just buying Google, for example. It needs to actually be yeah. something that is a long-term <coughs> trend and, and has the, the coverage you need. Yes, I, I, if I buy technology, I want to be also the more, um, the, the more cautiously optimistic and not follow a trend, a hype, and don't overpay what I'm buying because Often you see big tech companies that are booming and you, you are reaching valuations that many people find totally reasonable. Just remember it was also the case of Cisco in 2000. Today we are 50% lower and the profits have tripled. So yes, technology is very important. It will change our future, but you have to remain cautiously optimistic and also to not, not to follow a consensus, but to make your own opinion by reading many things, many different opinions, and not just following the herd. Regulation. With it being a constant pressure, how do you handle this regulatory pressure? How do you ensure that you can still do your job as effective as possible? And how do you think it's going to impact you in the future? Marco, I'm going to come to you first because, um, as I understood correctly from when we spoke before, you, the phrase you used was useful but time-consuming. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because yesterday evening uh, I was uh, chatting with Pietro 
uh, we had dinner together and I told him that I remember that in 2014 uh, when he was uh, in London there was a European Research Summit at uh, JP Morgan and uh, Jamie Diamond was there and he was doing the opening speech on, uh, on the last day and he said, uh, joking uh, to the audience, that uh, since the great financial crisis, nearly 90% of the new employees uh, in JP Morgan were employed into legal, compliance, or internal audit functions. And uh, because he was still considering those functions as a sort of non-core function for a financial uh, institution. I'm sure that in 2018 uh, uh, it would not say that because they have become surely core function in uh, every uh, financial institution. From what I know from my experience is that when I joined uh, uh, my company 12 years ago, I was mainly uh, writing reports that were referring to due diligence of managers uh, that, uh, that I met or that I was performing the initial due diligence or I was uh, uh, writing a monthly reports, quarterly reports. Nowadays, uh, I'm uh, writing more and more uh, uh, reports for uh, the investment committee, uh, reports for the board of director. Um, I'm in the board of director and it's incredible how bigger it has become, uh, the, the, the quantity of paper that we receive from internal audit, compliance, risk management. My idea is that regulation has potentially reached a point where any uh, further request is going to be even a bit redundant. I would say my feeling is that as of today regulation, uh, I would say the, the, the number of control that uh, have been set up both at the company level, at the manco level, and uh, the regulator are pretty good. And definitely it's time consuming. <laughs> so even that seems like this is, that's a very uh, comprehensive answer in terms of the, the, it does seem like it's time consuming for everyone. It's the same case for you, and with special emphasis on the fact that you wanted to work or you like working with smaller boutiques. Is that challenging under this regulation? Yes, because you, you cannot work as we, we, we cannot work as we worked before because of these regulations. So we adapt, we tend to spend the less possible time on, on that paperwork that doesn't bring value to the clients. And if we, as, as you said, Marco, if we have more regulations, it will be redundant, it will be counterproductive for clients, it won't bring more safety. Maybe I think we are already too far because the new regulations don't bring more safety to the clients, it brings more costs. So it, it's a, uh, a burden to the clients. That's why we are trying to keep the cost of the new regulations, the compliance of new regulations as low as possible, not to burden the, the performance of the clients. But it's, it's a problem. It's a real problem if it goes too far. We are at the, limi at the limit that we can manage. Afterwards, we will just have to behave like any big company that does have just 10 preferred partners and we will not be able to be a real open platform choosing what we consider to be the best investments. Do you think that could be a way to move forward with preferred partners or do you think more companies will just to get around that regulatory? They, they, they started to do that, yes, because they do not have as much due diligence as they had before. 
they just select 10 partners, and they know that the biggest competitors do the same. So that's, I, I say that's a new behavior of the, of the industry. And that's where I think in the future, small boutiques might keep a competitive advantage, is by keeping this open architecture, as long as regulations don't kill us. <laughs> It's a bleak picture, but Marco, look, do you think that's because I've, I've heard this in several places that there's so much a boutique. Uh, <laughs> it's partly lying. <laughs> but in terms of that, because all sizes have to deal with the regulation, but in yeah. terms of the companies they want to work with, we've all spoken about this before. We're going to end up with a split industry of mega cap asset managers and yeah. smaller boutiques offering one strategy. Do you think we're moving closer to that point? Because it seems like it's been talked about for a long time. Well, a little bit. I think that probably my feeling is that uh, a few companies are going to externalize a few non-core strategies within their fund offer. Potentially, as fund selectors, uh, our role is, gonna, is going to be involved more and more in the selection of uh, external partners for mandates or as Ivan said, for a, a, a short list or, of preferred partners on the distribution networks. Luckily, if you are managing fund of funds, you will still retain the freedom to work with a lot of counterparts. Also, small boutiques, of course, doing the proper due diligence and whatsoever. But on the distribution side, yeah, we are going to see the short list probably shrinking more, uh, more and more. I remember 12 years ago, I don't know if you can talk about these things, but when I joined Luxembourg, they were offering the biggest uh, fund list available on the market through a company that was called Fund Market. I don't know if it's the, uh, still the case today, but for sure, nowadays, clients are able by themselves to buy less funds than they were able to do before. As fund selectors, still we retain the freedom to, whenever we are talking about funds of funds, we retain the freedom to work with a lot of companies. But surely this preferred partner uh, structure is becoming quite common everywhere. You, because this is something that has come up in conversations where it seems like a lot of people are being pushed that way for cost purposes as much as regulation. I mean, they're all interlinked, but we've seen HSBC Private Bank move to a strategic partner model um, yeah. over the last two years, and from my understanding, more and more people are doing it. So that seems like that's going to be a growing as a combination. Trend. Okay. Well, I mean, that leads on to the, the final question, which was looking at longer-term trends and how the industry will evolve. And I think you've both touched upon some of the themes. We talked in the, in the call um, about passives. I know this was an area that neither of you had much exposure or much interest, but it does seem like the influence there is growing. Um, if I could come to you, even because we talked about when you're willing to pay for quality and the difference between paying for quality in passives and paying for quality in active and, and a premium there, if I've understood correctly, that there is a time where if you've got a good manager, you have to then just justify the costs through the performance. Is that my <coughs> right answer? Yes. But I, I think that the studies that are showing that passives tend to outperform active managers because they are less expensive are biased because in active management you have many closer trackers, you have many quasi-index funds. If you put all that funds aside and you take only real asset managers that, are, that have a real active share and then you make your selection within that small universe, I think that active management on the long term 
will outperform passives. And that's quite easy to understand because when you buy a Bentley, you know what you're buying. When you buy a Vauxhall, you know what you're buying and you're not expecting to pay the same price. That's the same for asset management, I think. Marco, same feeling? I am happy that you didn't mention fiat, you know, <laughs> because now we have moved up. But no, I totally agree. I totally agree. There are, of course, a certain distinction. There are a few areas where nearly every one of us uh, uh, gave up a little bit. U.S. equity, I think that every one of us has a little bit of exposure to U.S. equity through passive instruments. But there are a few other areas uh, like uh, European equity, Asia-Pacific equity. Bond in general, never go passive in bond because it's just buying a benchmark, which is by definition buying the biggest uh, liability issuer. So I would say is the, is the nonsense of quality investing. Uh, so um, for me, passive makes sense when I'm uh, willing to have a, a bit exposure, but still, uh, I would say considering that the alpha, half of the alpha that you can make is done through asset allocation, and half of that done through bottom-up fund selection, there are certain areas where surety fund selection will still play a great role. The biggest example for me is pan-European equity. Where would it be for you, Ivan? Because like, if you are having some in US equity and you shouldn't go into, or it's not advised to go into bonds, where can a selector really prove their worth? Where can you find proper active managers? I think you can find proper active managers everywhere, but in thematic investment, I think it's a, it's a, a good example because if you take huge funds or trackers in different themes, you will have everything in the, in the portfolio. Take the sector of water, you will find Nestle in portfolios because you have bottled water, but in fact Nestle is coffee and milk. You will have uh, Google or uh, Amazon in robotics fund because they are using or playing a little bit in, in robotics. But if you want real pure players, you have to take real active managers, small boutiques that can handle liquidity in those small players that are pure players in the sector or in the team you're playing. And that, that's where I think you, you can find the, the best value in active management versus passive. But you can also find great global equity asset managers in the active, in the active world, that, and they will always outperform the MSCI world, for instance. We are uh, drawing towards the end, so I'm going to look very long term here, because we talked... Um, yeah, right. Everybody's hungry. Yes, exactly. We're looking at five to ten years into the future. I mean, Mark, on the call, you asked me not to make you make any predictions, and then we talked at length about um, banks and how the role of banks and asset managers is changing. Could you expand on that? How do you see the two things diverging? But a few of them are uh, probably giving up a little bit on asset management. A few others are investing. Uh, for me, the, the biggest change that I potentially see uh, in the future is going to involve, uh, as I said before, uh, um, uh, uh, retail clients. because. Potentially, they would embrace more and more low-cost platform that are able to provide you 15 different standard portfolios made up of low-fee uh, products or low-tracking error products. 
which should completely make sense because at the end it's going to provide a real cost-effective investment solution. So I think that probably banks uh, are uh, slightly willing uh, to give up on uh, the lowest uh, chunk of their client base, but still they will try to fight hard on uh, their uh, high net worth client. So it's going to be a change of focus? A little bit. Even what do you think yes. is going to be the, the main drive for yes, the so Exactly the same, yes. And you've seen that in the UK where many private asset managers disappeared already two or three years ago. And today, if you don't have at least one million pounds, you're in front of a rope advisor, a Fidelity, or whatever other company. And that's it. It's just changing the shape, changing yes. the landscape. And yes. the, the but but for, for the lower segment sure. of the client base. And the investment solution sometimes is pretty good, I would say. It's not all rubbish. It's <laughs> no, no, but you have a machine in front of you. You don't yeah, have definitely. You definitely. don't have a person. You don't have a human contact. Definitely. And for many clients, that's something that's missing. Of course, so you're going to end up with this mid-gap yeah. of people who have quite yeah. a bit of money, but they're not being catered for, like you said, in the same way as the ultra-high net worth who will still get yeah. that relationship manager, yeah. personal contact. Those people will be the ones who are turning to robo-advisors and screens yeah. and doing it that way. And, and people that don't focus just on asset management, but that can advise a bit wider, not only on the portfolio, but... Sure. A weak point, I made a few trials on a few investment platforms for me, is that they are going to use... Uh, they are using... Uh, uh, too many ETFs products on uh, fixed income. And that's for me a concern uh, considering that we are reaching uh, an inflection point in the interest rate cycle. Therefore, I don't think that being exposed just uh, to fixed income via ETF is going to be a sound investment solution. But this is the investment solution that all these uh, platforms are providing you. So that's the only... Gentlemen, thank you very much. A lot to get your teeth into, and if you have any follow-ups or comments, then don't hesitate to get in touch. I can be reached at cslowly at cityware.co.uk or at chris underscore slowly on Twitter. Check back for a new podcast coming shortly on citywireselector.com or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Goodbye for now. Aberdeen Standard Investments. Proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts.